Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the night of November 13, 1974, a few dozen workers from Kerr-McGee Nuclear Facility met in the back of a diner in Crescent, Oklahoma. They were all members of the plant's labor union, and they were eager to get an update on their contract negotiations. But something felt off. One of the union's most talkative members, Karen Silkwood, was strangely quiet. Instead of leading the discussion, she sat in the corner, quietly sipping her iced tea and reading through a manila folder. The rest of the group tried to keep the conversation going, but they were all distracted by Karen. She seemed painfully thin. Her bony hands shook as she sifted through the folder again and again. When the meeting ended and everyone stood up to leave, Karen seemed dazed. She looked like she was going to faint. Two of her fellow union members offered her a ride home, but the 28-year-old smiled politely and told them not to worry. Karen wasn't going home that night. She was headed to an Oklahoma City hotel. There, she'd meet with a New York Times reporter and show him the evidence that something dangerous was happening at the Kerr-McGee plant. The documents on Karen's passenger seat could take down one of the country's largest corporations. They'd shine a light on the human toll of the atomic age and force America to see the deep corruption of its nuclear industry. Or it would have if Karen had only made it to Oklahoma City alive. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the death of Karen Silkwood. This week, we'll cover Karen's career at the Kerr-McGee plutonium plant and the mysterious circumstances that led up to her death. Next week, we'll cover how Karen became a martyr for the anti-nuclear movement and the continued search for answers around her death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
Karen Gay Silkwood was born in the heart of Texas oil country on February 19, 1946. She grew up in Nederland, Texas, a small town that's just an hour and a half drive east of Houston. The town was ringed by oil refineries, and the burning waste gases made the sky around Karen's house glow a dusty orange at all hours of the night. Karen's childhood featured the constant groans of oil derricks and the hum of nearby refineries. Some might have found it annoying, but Karen took comfort in it. She was excited by the giant machine she saw bobbing up and down all over the landscape and yearned to understand how they worked. Karen was the oldest of three sisters. She spent most of her time taking care of the younger girls while her parents, Bill and Merle Silkwood, went to work. She was a friendly, spirited little girl and never hesitated to help other kids in the neighborhood with their schoolwork, whether they wanted it or not. Karen suffered from frequent asthma attacks and bouts of hay fever, but when she decided to learn to play the flute in fourth grade, she didn't let her delicate respiratory system stop her. She dutifully practiced her instrument every day and performed in the school band all the way through high school. When she reached her teen years, Karen became a familiar sight around Nederland. She seemed to volunteer for every civic organization available. She worked as a babysitter at her church and played on her school's volleyball and tennis teams. Karen was a straight-A student and a member of the National Honor Society with a special love for science and math classes. She enjoyed volunteering at the local hospital, and her teachers urged her to go into nursing. But Karen had her sights set a little bit higher. She wanted to become a medical researcher. Dad, I just got the forms to register for classes. Can you sign them? Let me have a look. English, U.S. History, Band, Advanced Mathematics, Home Economics. I thought you were taking chemistry next year. Well, I was, but when I went to the counselor's office, he said there's never been a girl in that class. So he figured I should take home ec instead. I'll study chemistry once I get to college. You can study home economics by helping your mother with the laundry. Karen, if you want to take chemistry, take chemistry. You'll be smarter than any of those boys anyway. And just like that, Karen Silkwood became the first girl in her high school to take a chemistry class. She passed with flying colors. 18-year-old Karen graduated high school in June of 1964, and she was awarded a full scholarship to Lamar University's Institute of Technology in Beaumont, Texas. She was excited to spend the next four years learning all she could about science and the human body. But just a few weeks after Karen's high school graduation, her plans for a life of research and academics took a sharp turn. While staying with her grandparents in East Texas, she met a 17-year-old named Bill Meadows who was visiting from California. Bill was one year younger than Karen and didn't share her interest in school or science, but Bill's gleaming motorcycle and stories about life on the West Coast wooed the small-town girl immediately. Karen didn't want to wait around for Bill to come calling, so she asked him out herself. Soon enough, the teenager's flirtation morphed into a full-on romance. But it didn't last. In August of 1964, the couple parted ways. Bill headed home to finish high school. Karen moved into her dorm at Lamar College to start her freshman year. Karen enjoyed her first year of college, but found it difficult to be one of the only women on campus. 
She wrote letters to Bill throughout the year, and he promised to come back to Texas once he graduated. Then, in the spring of 1965, he finally followed through. Within three weeks of Bill's arrival, Karen dropped out of college, and the couple drove to Louisiana to get married. But when she rushed home to tell her parents the good news, it didn't go over well. Married? Is that even legal at your age? Well, we went to Louisiana. Laws are different there. You didn't think to ask for our blessing first? Just run off and get married like that? You better not have missed your classes for this. Well, you're not going to like this, but I'm dropping out. College is too much for me. And now that I have a husband... You're dropping out? What about your scholarship? Just throwing away all your brains for some no-good grease monkey? Sweetie, calm down. She's just a girl. Well, she's my girl. She could really be somebody someday. Karen Silkwood's father never forgave Bill Meadows for coaxing his daughter away from her education. He refused to give his blessing to their marriage. The young couple moved to Corsicana, Texas, where Bill found work in the oil fields. About a year later, in November of 1966, 20-year-old Karen became pregnant with their first child. She gave birth to a daughter named Christy. Karen stayed at home with Christy and two years later had another child. By 1970, 24-year-old Karen had three children. She was a dutiful and loving mother, but as her family grew, her marriage fell apart. Bill developed a serious drinking problem and ran up the family's debt so high that he had to declare bankruptcy. In 1972, he also began cheating on Karen with a woman named Kathy, who he worked with at a motorcycle repair shop. At one point, Karen even packed up the kids and drove away, saying she wanted a divorce. But when Bill begged her to take him back, she agreed, hoping things would finally be different. They weren't. Bill Meadows continued to run up debt and cheat. He started calling Kathy his girlfriend and openly talked about marrying her. One day, Karen got so fed up with his behavior that she gave him an ultimatum. If you're going to keep sleeping with her, at least have the dignity to leave me first, Bill. Come on, Karen. You know it's not like that. You know I hear about these things, right? Like how you asked her to marry you? Hey, now, I'd had a few too many drinks in me, and It doesn't I- matter, Bill. I want you to stop seeing her. If you can't do it for me, then do it for the kids. It's not that simple. I love her, Karen. I'm not going to stop seeing a woman I love. If you hate me so much, how about this? If you want a divorce, give me the kids. At first, the offer of divorce in exchange for custody seemed ridiculous. Karen wanted to end her toxic marriage and keep her children... Bill's offer of one or the other was a cruel way to keep her in this twisted love triangle. But Karen knew she needed out. She couldn't handle life with him anymore. But she also knew that she'd be a single woman with barely one year of college under her belt. There was no way she could support three young children on her own. And so in the summer of 1972, Karen made the most difficult choice in her young life. She took Bill up on his offer. She agreed to disappear from her children's lives if it meant she could get away from him. Karen met with Bill's mistress and humbly asked if she would help raise the children, the youngest of which was only two years old. Kathy agreed. With that, Karen started planning her escape. 
One morning in August of 1972, 26-year-old Karen Silkwood told her children that she was going out to buy cigarettes. She never returned. For the second time in her 26 years, Karen Silkwood had radically altered the direction of her life. She had lost her identity as a precocious brainiac when she married Bill and her identity as a wife and mother when she left him. It seemed like those seven years had gone to waste. She was back at square one. So when Karen heard that the Kerr-McGee Nuclear Corporation was looking for lab analysts at its plant outside of Oklahoma City, she jumped at the opportunity. It seemed like the perfect place to get her scientific career back on track. Just a few weeks after leaving her family, Karen Silkwood started working at Kerr-McGee's plutonium plant in Crescent, Oklahoma. At the age of 26, Karen thought that she was restarting her life. But actually, it was dangerously close to ending. Next, we'll cover Karen's new life and how it led to her death. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on miracle healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In August of 1972, just a few weeks after abandoning her life as a housewife and mother, 26-year-old Karen Silkwood got a job at a plutonium plant in Crescent, Oklahoma. The plant was brand new, built on the banks of the Cimarron River only two years before. It was operated by the Kerr-McGee Corporation, which owned dozens of oil, gas, and nuclear energy plants in the state. The Cimarron plant processed plutonium, a highly radioactive element which was collected from the waste of uranium-based nuclear reactors. Workers processed this raw material into pellets and encased them in eight-foot-long stainless steel rods that were the width of a pencil. For about $4 an hour, it was Karen's job to check the quality of these fuel rods, examining the welds for imperfections or cracks. The work wasn't especially interesting, but Karen was excited about a future in the nuclear industry. 
it was becoming increasingly clear that America was entering an energy crisis, and nuclear power seemed like a cutting-edge replacement for natural gas. Nuclear power plants could produce astounding amounts of energy with only a fraction of the resources that natural gas required. The only drawback was their reliance on dangerous, unstable elements like uranium and plutonium, the same materials that made up the atomic bomb. Karen took the plant's safety requirements very seriously. She only touched the fuel rods with thick rubber gloves and dutifully checked her radiation levels every time she entered and exited the lab. Though she missed her children deeply, she felt that this new life was right for her. She was far away from Bill, making good money, and working with exciting new technology. And it didn't hurt that a handsome co-worker had already taken a liking to her. His name was Drew Stevens. Drew was Karen's age and on the tail end of his own toxic marriage. He started to date Karen while his divorce proceedings went through. A few weeks after they met, Drew lost his house in the divorce. And in early September 1972, he moved in with Karen and her roommate. The new couple bonded over their interest in science and spent long nights staring at the stars and talking about nuclear technology. Drew had worked at Kermagee for his entire adult life and gave Karen the lowdown on their co-workers and managers. He also convinced her to join the local chapter of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, or OCAW, in September of 1972. What you looking at? Just union stuff. Contract negotiations coming up. Just want to be prepared. You got the pamphlet too, right? I didn't even know the Cimarron plant had a union. (laughs) Figures. Seems like management will do anything to keep us quiet. You should join up, though. It's not hard. And we're thinking of striking soon. That's exciting, I guess. My dad was always disappearing off to union meetings when I was a kid. Well, I know there's no one I'd rather have next to me on that picket line. (laughs) All right. How do I sign up? 26-year-old Karen didn't need much convincing to join OCAW. After only a month at the Kermagee plant, she had already heard horror stories about it. She may have taken her health and safety seriously, but Karen began to notice her managers cutting corners wherever they could. Respirators and protective equipment were often defective or ill-fitting. Samples of radioactive plutonium were stored improperly and sometimes left in desk drawers. Leaky gaskets were fixed with tape, which did nothing to stop the workers from breathing in radioactive dust. On several occasions, workers were told to ignore tornado warnings and exposure alarms, and trucks that were splashed with plutonium were not disinfected before driving through the public car wash. That put the entire community in danger of radiation. So when the local OCAW chapter announced a strike in November 1972, Karen felt duty-bound to join. The Crescent, Oklahoma chapter was tiny. They only had about 150 members and barely stood a chance against one of the most powerful energy conglomerates in the United States. Kermagee had been a leader in the nuclear industry for 25 years, and in 1972, it was number 207 on the Fortune 500 list of the most profitable corporations in America. It was also one of the most politically connected companies in the country. 
Its founder, Robert Kerr, had served as governor of Oklahoma after founding the company. He later served three terms in the United States Senate before his death in 1963. The International Office of the Oil, Coal, and Atomic Workers Union knew all about Kermagee's political might. So when Karen's local chapter informed them of their plans to strike in 1972, OCAW International advised against it. The union was simply too small, and their demands were never going to be met. But the union persisted. Just three months after she started at Kerr-McGee, Karen Silkwood found herself pacing outside of the plant's chain-link fence, holding a huge sign that said, On Strike. She stayed on that side of the picket line for 10 weeks, even as contract negotiations stalled and dozens of her fellow union members defected. The 10-week strike was a complete failure. Kerr-McGee refused to budge on any of the union's demands and simply waited for them to give up. When Karen finally returned to work in January of 1973, she was one of only 20 members left in the local OCAW chapter. The strike had been a massive defeat for the union, but it lit something up inside of Karen Silkwood. Her eyes had been opened to the true nature of her employer, who seemed to be putting its profits above its employees' health and safety. Karen's fellow union members took note of her passion and her ability to stick up for what was right. When chapter elections rolled around a few months later, she was voted to be part of the union's three-person steering committee. The union was deeply unpopular in the plant, but protections were needed now more than ever. In the spring of 1974, Kerr-McGee fell behind on a government contract and drastically sped up production. They started requiring 12-hour shifts seven days a week and hired dozens of teenagers and even people experiencing homelessness to make up for lost time. The workforce was undertrained and overwhelmed. Some new employees would joke that the easiest way to get out of a shift was to purposely spill a little bit of radioactive material onto their skin. That way they got sent home early. Almost every day, Karen heard a contamination alarm and saw a co-worker being ushered into the plant shower. She heard them scream in pain as the health officers at the plant rubbed bleach and scalding water into their skin to remove any traces of plutonium. At one point, Karen was stunned to find a set of quality control x-rays that appeared to be tampered with. The x-rays seemed to show hairline fractures in the fuel rods. But someone had used a black felt-tip pen to cover them up, allowing the rods to pass inspection. If these cracked rods were put into use, Karen knew they could cause a nuclear meltdown. Karen recorded all of these instances in a brown spiral notebook and interviewed her co-workers about their concerns. In a rural area where steady jobs were hard to come by, many people resented Karen's behavior. She quickly became a social outcast, but that didn't stop her from digging for information. After several months of collecting data, Karen and her fellow organizers reached out to OCAW's international office. They were stunned by Karen's stories. It was time to file a formal complaint with the Federal Atomic Energy Commission. 
On September 26, 1974, Karen Silkwood arrived in Washington, D.C. with two of her co-workers. There, they met with Tony Mizaki, OCAW's legislative director. They told him story after story about the sloppiness and dishonesty they witnessed at the plant. Tony had spent his entire career hearing about worker mistreatment in oil refineries, coal mines, and nuclear reactors. But his jaw dropped to the floor when Karen started reading from her notebook. And aside from the fake x-rays, contaminations happen almost every day. I mean, I take all of the safety precautions I can, and I still feel that due to the environment, I'm at risk for skin damage, reproductive issues... And cancer. What? You don't know that plutonium causes cancer? The company told us that as long as you got it off your skin in time, you'd be fine. Even a tiny speck of the stuff will probably lead to lung cancer somewhere down the line. And it hasn't been around long enough for us to know about other long-term effects. How could they just lie to our faces like that? We'll put an end to that. Karen was stunned. Kerr McGee didn't tell anyone about the plutonium's long-term effects, even though they were well-known in the scientific community. Tony Mizaki and his OCAW colleagues used Karen's information to file a formal complaint. They didn't have much faith in the Atomic Energy Commission's ability to crack down on Kerr McGee, though. Because the company had so many cronies in the federal government, Tony knew that they needed to come at them from another direction. They would leak the story of the doctored x-rays straight to the New York Times. Tony knew an investigative reporter who had been itching to cover the nuclear industry, but the journalist would need more proof than Karen's scribbled notes. He would need official documents, x-rays, and photos. Tony, who had been impressed by Karen's tenacity, knew she could be the person to get them. He talked to her privately, reminding her that she had to work quietly and not tell anyone about her mission, not even other union leaders. In September 1974, 28-year-old Karen agreed to the undercover assignment. She told Tony not to worry. She understood what she was getting into, but she had no idea. Coming up, Karen makes a major breakthrough in her investigation and then suffers the consequences. Now, back to the story. By October of 1974, 28-year-old Karen Silkwood was furious at her employer, Kerr McGee. The company had put her and all of her co-workers at risk for cancer, and she was ready to strike back. After her meetings with union officials in Washington, D.C., Karen returned to the plant with a renewed sense of purpose and a secret mission. She had been enlisted to collect proof of the plant's safety violations and got to work immediately. She began jotting down notes and stealing copies of company documents. She frequently had late-night phone conversations with Tony Mazaki and another national union leader, Steve Wadka. Karen knew that she was disobeying both company policy and federal law by stealing information about government contracts. But it seemed like the right thing to do. It didn't take long before she uncovered another story that could make headlines. About 40 pounds of plutonium 
had disappeared from the plant without a trace. Though some of this loss could be attributed to statistical errors, it couldn't all be. Not to mention, it took less than 15 pounds of plutonium to create the bomb that decimated Nagasaki in 1945. Anything close to 40 pounds was enough to wipe out any city in America. Suddenly, this wasn't just a story of corporate greed and negligence. It could be a matter of national security. Karen became even more feverish in her search for evidence and proof, and her health started to suffer. Karen had suffered with sleep issues for months and was taking quaaludes to help. This new drug was the only thing that could put her to sleep, but it was also highly addictive. By October, Karen had developed a serious tolerance. She was routinely taking quaaludes to calm her down throughout the day. She soon stopped eating regular meals, and the already petite 28-year-old dropped weight rapidly. Her boyfriend, Drew Stevens, encouraged her to quit her job. Karen assured him that she would leave as soon as she could. She just needed to keep going until mid-November, when she would meet with the journalist, hand over the documents, and be done with it. But just over a week before this planned end date, on November 5th, 1974, everything changed. That evening, Karen finished grinding and polishing a set of plutonium samples in a sealed glove box, as she had done hundreds of times. On her way out of the lab, she raised her hands to the radiation meter. Karen was contaminated. When health officers did a more thorough scan, they found that parts of her hands had 20 times the amount of plutonium considered safe by the Atomic Energy Commission. They also found high levels of contamination in her nasal passages. That meant that there was plutonium inside her lungs. 28-year-old Karen was sent to the shower and washed with Clorox bleach and Tide detergent. The harsh mixture burned her skin. Karen was confused. She'd been using thick gloves throughout her entire shift. That level of contamination could have only come from a substantial tear in the gloves or radioactive material inside of them. And when the gloves were tested later, they were fine. When Karen showed up to work the next day on November 6, 1974, she did her best to stay away from plutonium. She filled out paperwork all morning, then gathered her things to go to a meeting. Even though she hadn't touched anything radioactive, she checked the meter on her way out. Again, she was contaminated. She hadn't even entered the laboratory, but there were dangerous levels of radiation on her arms, her neck, and her face even more than the day before. Karen was forced to take another painful shower, this time with a corrosive paste of medical-grade disinfectants. She had effectively removed an entire layer of skin the day before and emerged from this shower cracked and raw. When she came home early, Drew told her not to cry. The salt would burn her cheeks. As Karen drove to work the next day, she felt paranoid and jumpy. She wondered if the contaminations were a retaliation for her recent detective work. But she had less than a week before her meeting, and she couldn't give up now. Karen walked into the Cimarron plant and immediately checked in at the health office for another nasal smear. This time, she was more contaminated than ever before. 
radioactive material coated her nasal passages. It was all over her hands, arms, chest, neck, and ears. But since she just arrived at work, she must have brought the radiation in with her. Karen allowed the health officers to search her car and apartment. A crew of men in protective suits descended on her apartment, scanning for radioactivity. There were traces of plutonium all over the apartment, including all over the bathroom and kitchen. The highest concentrations of radioactive material were on a package of bologna and cheese in the refrigerator. All of Karen's belongings were too radioactive to be used again. The Kerr-McGee health officers dumped everything into 55-gallon barrels to be buried in a nuclear waste dump. By the time Karen arrived, after another painful shower, her apartment was half empty. Her clothes, journals, and record collection had all been carted away. She was grateful that the growing manila folder of evidence against Kerr-McGee wasn't in the apartment. But she was convinced that Kerr-McGee knew about her investigation. Karen wondered if they were using the radiation as an excuse to search her house and threaten her. It seemed like the company was willing to do anything to stop her. Mama, this is Karen. Karen, sweetie, what's wrong? I'm dying, Mom. I've been contaminated over and over again, and I think I'm dying. Honey, calm down. What are you saying? I swear to God, they want me dead. There's no treatment for the things they've done to me, Mama. I'm scared. I need to come home. Should I drive up and get you? I can leave right now. No, not yet. Drew can take care of me for a few days. I still have one more piece of union business to take care of. But after that, I'm quitting. I'm getting the hell out of Oklahoma. Karen Silkwood made similar, tearful calls to her boyfriend and the international OCAW officials in Washington, D.C. The union officials knew that they needed to get the New York Times reporter to Oklahoma as quickly as possible. But before the reporter could get there, doctors from the Atomic Energy Commission and Kerr-McGee sent 28-year-old Karen to the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico for a battery of tests. On November 12, 1974, the doctors informed her that she had somehow ingested plutonium. They insisted that her radiation levels were within the AEC's healthy range, but Karen wasn't so sure. She knew the AEC's limits were highly contested by nuclear scientists. A prominent nuclear researcher would later look at Karen's results from Los Alamos and conclude that she was, in his words, married to cancer. But the doctors at the time insisted that she was fine and should go back to work. Karen was terrified. She didn't know what the radiation would do to her body and worried that she was about to die. She quickly wrote out three birthday cards, all late by several months, and mailed them to her children, trying to make amends after years of absence. Perhaps the biggest question in Karen Silkwood's mind was how she had ingested the plutonium and why so many people seem to think she swallowed it on purpose. Even Karen's boyfriend, Drew, had begun to consider that possibility. Karen, I don't mean to pry, but you tell me if you ate a pellet, right? What? A plutonium... I know exactly what kind of pellet you're referring to, Drew. I wouldn't, and I didn't. I'm sorry, I just... 
I needed to ask. I don't understand why everyone thinks that I poisoned myself, but I guess they all do. I just know how much you care about safety in the plant. I thought that you might have tried to make an example of yourself or something. Well, if you really think I would have done all this to myself, you're a lot dumber than I thought, Drew. You can pay the tab. I'll be in the room. Karen Silkwood came back to Crescent, Oklahoma on November 13th, 1974. During her first day back at work, she attended another negotiation session. Again, Kermagee refused to move on any of the union's demands. She was questioned by AEC officials for three hours and snuck away to a phone booth to call Steve Wadka. The union official confirmed the plan for that night. Karen was to meet him, the journalist, and Drew at the Holiday Inn in Oklahoma City at 7.30 p.m. There, she would hand over the documentation of Kermagee's safety violations, fudged quality control data, and missing plutonium. Then she could quit her job, move in with her parents, and wait for the New York Times story to take down Kermagee. Karen agreed to everything, then popped a few quaaludes to calm her nerves. That evening, 28-year-old Karen sat through a union strategy meeting at a diner in town but her mind was elsewhere. She compulsively leafed through her folder and notebook, checking that all of the evidence was there. When the meeting finally ended around 7 p.m., she was excited to get into her car, hoping that soon this whole nightmare would be over. Unfortunately, Karen Silkwood never made it to the Oklahoma City Holiday Inn. Around 7.30 p.m., a flatbed truck's headlights reflected off of something on the right side of the road. The driver carefully pulled his one-ton rig to the shoulder and angled his lights towards the ditch. He recognized the outline of a white Honda Civic and called down to the car. There was no answer. The driver picked up a flashlight and walked toward the wreckage. There were pieces of paper all over the muddy bank. Handwritten notes, x-rays, and a Kerr-McGee paycheck. The left front of the car was crumpled. A limp arm was sticking out of the window. The truck driver bolted back to his truck and radioed for help. He did his best to pick up the scattered papers and place them in the back seat while waiting for the state troopers to arrive. Reportedly, Kerr-McGee officials showed up before law enforcement did. And somehow... Between the trucker's discovery and the police investigation of Karen's car, all her papers disappeared. Karen Silkwood's tragic story would only get stranger from there. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the mysterious death of Karen Silkwood. For more information on Karen and Kermagee, amongst the many sources we used, we found Richard Rashke's book, The Killing of Karen Silkwood, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington, with writing assistance by River Donahue and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Kai Jordan, Ellie Schiff, and Laura Faye Smith. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 